So, uh, welcome Union Grove. I love that song, Be Thou My Vision. Um, I asked Josh to sing that tonight because um, uh, I just recently sang that song. Uh, I was listening to that song the other day, and, and it's, it's, I love how God has always used that song in my Christian walk um, with Be Thou My Vision. Um, Thou my best thought by day or by night. Oftentimes when I'm struggling in my walk and when I'm struggling in life or something's bothering me, he's my best thought. And his presence is my light. And his presence is my guidance. And, and those lyrics have always kind of kind of guided me in, in tough times. And so tonight it kind of related to the message of letting Jesus be your best thought um, by day or by night. Letting him be that thought. Your best thoughts are those that are, are around him, surrounding him, and from him. And I just, I love that song. And Tabitha loves that song because it says, Riches I heed not. So between her father and I, she doesn't have to listen to either one of those. So tonight we're going to talk about something called Eanity. If you want to try to say that with me, Eanity. You guys are great. You're doing better than I am. It took me a while to get that right. So Eanity, you're probably like thinking, what, what is this? Anybody hear of it? No, Okay. A little disappointed. I thought I thought everybody knew about it. So um, what? What? It, it, it's Google it. Google it and see what happens. You'll probably come up that that'll be intriguing. Uh, but no, eanity. What it is? It's it's something that people practice, and I and I don't think they realize that they're practicing when they're practicing. It's kind of like uh, uh, one of those uh, when one group of believers will give a name for how another group of believers believes, like easy believism or lordship salvation. So it's not like the people of lordship salvation are practicing it and go, hey, we're lordship salvation guys. It's the other camp that does that. And they're like, you're easy believism. And they, the guys in the grace camp are like, no, we're grace camp. We're not easy believism. And, and eanity is the same way. It's when people practice it and they don't really realize they're practicing it. So what do these people look like? They look like good people, right? They're, they're, they're good moral people. They believe in their Second Amendment right. They actually know what it is. They actually know what an amendment is in the Constitution. They believe in their Second Amendment right, and they're going to fight for it. They believe that you should protect the unborn. They, they'll be up in arms about the murder of the innocent. Don't even get them started about pronouns, right? They even quote Scripture. So when they get in that conversation, God created them male and female, right? Done. And they also appear joyful. They have this joyfulness to them. And so... I want to I want to warn against Is this going? We're not connected here. So I thought that'd be moving. Maybe you can help that out. Thanks Mr. Steele. So, um eanity, it's 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 dangerous cuz it's attractive. It looks right, it feels right, it it smells right. It passes the smells test if you will. And, and, and it's dangerous because it's real easy to fall into what it is and get doing it without even realizing you're doing it. It's both for the saved and the unsaved. It's, it's real easy to practice. There we go. Thanks, man. I mean, technology. Feeling like an old man. So I tell you what, before I get into uh, eanity and what it actually is, Let's get to our Heavenly Father and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for church. Thank you so much for coming together on a Sunday night to worship and praise you, Lord. Thank you so much for bringing in uh, the varsity team, so to speak, Lord. 
those that really care and love about you and, and are going to want to come and fellowship and enjoy time under your word. And Lord, I just pray that tonight that you use this humble vessel. Uh, speak through me, Lord. Use my stammering tongue to, to glorify you and, and to share your truth, Lord. Let it be about your word. Draw us closer to you, Lord. That's our hope. You. You are our hope, Lord. Let you, let you be the focus of tonight. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So, you guys wanted to figure it out? Anybody figure out what eanity is yet? Christianity minus Christ. It's really easy to happen. It, 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 it's really easy to start practicing Christianity without Christ. It's really easy to get real moral and about doing what's right and going on this path and not spending time with Christ, not enjoying Christ, walking away from the gospel, so to speak, and living a life. And, and you can have all those things. You can come to church, have a smile on your face, have your family looking right. You can be a moral person and, and do all the right things and say all the right things and, and be missing out on the biggest part of Christianity, which is Christ. He is why we're here. He is how we're here. And we're going to get into 1 Corinthians 15 in a little bit, but I wanted to kind of talk about some of the dangers of inanity. Like the Bible gives us a couple examples when people are not following after God. So I wanted to start with a really awesome example from the Old Testament in Judges chapter 19. So automatically, if you think Judges, one of the theme of Judges, uh, it usually gets compared to Joshua. It's the conquest and chaos. Uh, judges, uh, Joshua, when you read Joshua, the Israelites are unified and fighting the enemy. And in Judges, they are not unified and they're fighting each other and they're listening to the enemy. And so the story in Judges, uh, chapter 19, it starts off with this gentleman. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. That includes God. They didn't, they didn't. You always read that. There's these two lines. In those days, uh, when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So when there was no king in Israel, there was a certain Levite staying in a remote mountains of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So right, right away, you know, this Levite, he's a member of the priesthood. He should have been trained in the law and understanding of the law. He should have been brought up to as a priest. The main role of a priest was to draw people to God, represent God to the people, and people to God, and, and be that conduit and, and maintain that relationship together. And so here's this guy. He's acting in his own morality. He's taking for himself a concubine. And, and when you read the rest of chapter 19, it, it goes downhill fast. So in this story, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to um, chapter 20, four and verses 4 to 6. So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine. I'll give you a little bit of the backstory, kind of skipping out a little too much. He goes to the town of Gibeah. And he goes there. He's going to stay the night in the city square. And a gentleman says, come spend the night at my house. Please. So he comes, spends the night at his house, and then the people of the town come to him, come to that house. And they want to abuse this Levite. 
And then the, the owner of the house and says, says, here, take, take my daughter, my untouched daughter, and take his concubine and do what you got to do. And in the morning, this Levite, he wakes up, he comes outside, and he sees his concubine, and he's like, let's go. It, it, and she's dead. She was left for dead, and then he realizes this. And so he sends out his notice to all the people of Israel, and all the Israel people come around and gather around him, and he says this to them. He says, and he, and he answers them, and he says, uh, uh, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. This is what's going on. The people, I mean, they're wicked. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. This is what happens when we rely on our own morality and we're going by morality and not by Christ. He continues on, this being a righteous man and a Levite. So I took hold of my concubine. This was his, his choice, his wisdom. Uh, I cut her into pieces and sent her throughout all the territories of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So this Levite, who's supposed to be a priest, decides to take his dead concubine, chop her up in 12 pieces, send her out to the tribes of Israel and say, come together here. We need to teach these Benjamites a lesson. He's a, he's a moral man. He's, he's, he's calling out lewdness and outrage in Israel, and he's saying all of us other Israelites need to correct these people. And needless to say, when we read this story, you're like, holy cow, you are missing the point. You are definitely not a moral fellow, even though he's acting in his own, what's right in his own eyes. Like he's declaring this a moral act. And so what do the people do? They join them and they decide to have civil war and they almost wipe out the tribe of the Benjamites. And then they have to make a plan to try to fix it. But you notice what he doesn't talk about in here. I didn't seek the Lord. I didn't go ask God what to do. He was a Levite. He was a priest. He should have known better out of all the people who to go talk to, whom to ask for wisdom. But instead, he takes matter in his own hands, and he goes out and he does this act. And it's just, it's horrible. And, and I know, and I get it, that's the book of Judges, and, and this is like, it's easy to wag a finger at them and, and see that the, that's not us. That's not us. We won't do that. But I'm telling you that, that when you're not pursuing God, this is what happens. That's the result. Civil war. Like James says, why do you have wars? Why do you fight? You, you're following your selfish desires. You're seeking yourself. And this is what's going on here in, in Israel. They're seeking themselves, not seeking God. Instead of seeking after God in his way, they're seeking after their own way. And it's a downward spiral in the book of Judges, and it ends with this horrible story. And more importantly, there's also... A New Testament example of this. The Church of Corinth. When I say the Church of Corinth, right, we think automatically of um, the carnal church. It's what you think of. Uh, The doctrine comes in there that we talk about uh, the natural man who's the unsaved man, and then you got the saved man, and there's two versions of the saved man. You have the carnal and the spiritual, right? And Paul highlights that. And so, Paul, we're going to spend some time in Corinthians, and I really, most of the message tonight, we're going to get to chapter 15. And uh, we're going to park there and really enjoy chapter 15. So right now, we're just going to kind of fly over the book of Corinthians and kind of look at some of these problems that were plaguing the Corinthian church. And so I kind of have an outline kind of highlighted, and we're going to go through parts of it at a time. So uh, it starts off with 
Paul's calling and the benefits of sainthood. I like how that's written. Uh, and so, like, in there, I highlighted these couple verses, first off and foremost, just to confirm. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Paul is saying, you guys know Christ. These people knew Christ. They knew it. It was confirmed in them. But they weren't practicing Christianity. They lost sight of their Savior. They weren't following Christ. And that's how we have this carnal church. Like he said, there's this comparison of the spiritual man versus the carnal man. And the carnal man, I know we have this tendency of looking down upon the carnal man, and we think of the carnal man as somebody that's deep in sin. It's contrasted by the spiritual man, the one that thinks about spiritual things versus the one that doesn't. The one that thinks of Jesus and God before he acts, and the one that doesn't. And so, yeah, they're steeped in sin, but they're steeped in, they're steeped in their sin because they're not focused on their Savior. And so Paul, he starts off right away, and he gives them, talks about the benefits of being a saint, talks about the benefits of being in Christ, and then he gets into the rest of the outline, kind of goes, errors and problems in the church. Verse 10 of chapter 1 to 16.4. Anybody know how many chapters there are in 1 Corinthians? 16. 16. So pretty much the rest of the book is about problems in the church. <laughs> so there's the, it's the rest of the book, right? And it starts off with unity. It starts off with unity. It's very important in the church, right? And, and what was going on, I'm going to sum it up real quick because I want to get to 15 because 15 is the glue that holds everything together. And even then, as he's highlighting 15, there's a problem inside the church. But there's unity, there's problems. I'm of Apollos. You remember this, where he talks about this? I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Everybody had their different speaker that they liked to listen to. Like, I'm of Pastor Schmidt. He's the uh, most scholarly of, of, of the teaching men here at, at Union Grove. I'm, uh, I like to hang out with Mr. Unger because he's the hippest cat that we have at Union Grove. Right? I like Mr. Steele. He's got the best style. It's the new glasses, my friend. Right? My college and career kids are like, I hang out with Rich because he's better than the other guys, period. So, but that's what they did. They had this division, and they had this thing. And I think that one of the things that we can get really in danger with the church is, is in the name of unity, we, we try not to fight, or we won't hang around with other people that we don't like, that will bristle against us. It's not that I don't love them. It's just our personality. I always kind of joke. Uh, like, I, I talk about this with people that kind of... Uh, I have a hard time with God loves you I don't <laughs> it's, a, it's an underlying attitude as much as I joke I convict myself because I, I know I don't love them the way God loves them because Christ died for everybody even the people I don't I don't enjoy but it, and, and so there's this disunity going on in the church it, it, and again it all is going to stem back from this sense of morality when it's without Christ it's still going to be tainted by sin. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He talks about putting off the corruptible for the incorruptible. That's a future hope. So right now we're living in the corruptible. And that's how you get this disunity in the church. And you get this separation and this spreading. <sighs> Servanthood, right? So that's the next thing that they're messing up is serving each other. 
They got puffed up. Paul uses this term a lot. Puffed up. It means to build yourself up, right? Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And so Paul talks about this in servanthood. It's like be lowly in mind and serve others. And they weren't getting that right because, of course, they were putting themselves first. Morality. Again, they're puffed up in their knowledge. But when you talk about morality, it really should be titled immorality. There's all sorts of different types of immorality in there, including sexual immorality. And then marriage. When we get to the portion on marriage, who did they have that wrong as well? And, and I like what Paul says right away when he goes to talk to him about marriage in, in chapter 7. He's like, since you're going to burn with lust in the flesh, get married, right? It's not like get married because it's a beautiful thing that God has ordained for you. It's get married so you stop sinning. It's, it's, I, I, it always cracks me up. Like, this is how we're going to start the marriage chapter in 7 when we're defining marriage and why we should get married. Paul encourages them to get married because there's sexual immorality going on, right? We haven't defined, we, we're, not, we're going by what we decide is moral. I don't know how many times a young man is, uh, uh, you know, convinced that um, the girl he's with is the one. She's the one. I know I'm going to marry her. And they permit intimacy before marriage. And then, like always, the relationship goes south, and then they break up, and their faith becomes shipwrecked because they gave up their purity. They took away her purity, and they sacrificed because they're not following after the moral will of God, but doing what was right in their own eyes. And these are men that I, I, I've, I've had Bible studies with and try to encourage them in the faith. And, and they make that error because, again, it's morality versus Christianity. It's, it's inanity versus Christ. And so marriage, they, they're messing this up too. You know what's interesting about marriage? What's a great way to mess up a marriage? Aha, seeking self, selfishness. Uh, one of my favorite books, um, uh, what did, you, oh, when, when sinners say I do. Uh, in there he talks about uh, uh, getting into arguments. Every marriage book talks about getting into arguments and argument resolution. Everybody that's married understands this wholeheartedly. But what he said in there, um, when he was talking in there about, about sinners saying I do is, in those arguments, when you're fighting, you're fighting for yourself. You're listening to hear, to argue. And he said this, and then we act in a hostile way with our limp justifications. And that, that line has stuck with me always, like these, these very empty reasons why we keep fighting for our perspective and our view in these fights. And so marriage, marriage, uh, they're, getting, they're, they're messing up. And usually when the fights are happening, it's not like you're fighting and you're thinking you're fighting from the point of I'm the gigantic sinner. No. You're fighting from the point where you think you're right and you're fighting for what you believe is right. From the tiniest little arguments of you should hang your clothes this way or the hanger goes this way, the toilet paper rolls out that way, to the bigger arguments of where your kids should go to school or should they be homeschooled to the bigger arguments of how many kids we should have or should we have kids. And all those arguments. And, and, and in that too, what actually is awesome is like, I don't know about you guys, but I know what stops the argument. Somebody stops fighting. And somebody looks towards Christ. Now as one of my roles as a spiritual leader, that's my job. 
to lead towards Christ, be the example, go out first, and put an end to the fight. Even though I am right. I can say that because Tabitha's not here tonight. So they're getting marriage wrong. And then Christian liberties. Ooh, this is a fun one too, right? When we're expressing our liberty, how close does this turn into license for sin? And again, knowledge puffs up, love builds up, right? And most of the time, people that get proud about their liberties, they're going to express their rights and don't tell me, no, you're legalistic. They're being just as legalistic because they're going to find out what's good for them, what's allowed, what's not allowed. This is okay, this is not okay, and I'm righteous in this manner. And, and, and they're expressing morality in a different way. And they're more worried about their morality and what's right and what's wrong than what they are about Christ. And that's how liberties really get messed up. As we get so worried about what we think is right and what we think is wrong, we forget about unity. We forget about Christ. And in this section, this is where Paul concludes with the statement, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Paul comes back to this. It's like it's about Christ. And when you start practicing liberties with Christ in mind, you're not going to get in those arguments about what's okay and what's not okay. You're going to be pursuing Christ, and everything you do is going to be in consciousness of Christ. And I, and I like it. If you, whatever you can do, if you can do it and give thanks to the Lord, enjoy it. And if you can't give thanks to the Lord for it because it's sin, well, knock it off. It's that easy. But there are also men and women, needless to say, they're messing up their old souls in the church as well. I don't even want to go there. That was a hot mess as well. But again, everybody's seeking self and their own morality and fighting for their own right. And then the Lord's Supper. We go to Corinthians because Paul spells out the Lord's Supper and how it should be because the Corinthians were... They had it so wrong. But again, it's a church that's practicing church. They're listening to disciples. They're listening to apostles. And they're practicing the Lord's Supper. And they're doing all the tenets of Christianity without Christ. And they're messing it up. The Lord's Supper turned into class warfare. The rich would show up first and start having, like, it was a big dinner, and, and, like a, and they'd go to a rich guy's house, and everybody there, and the rich guys would be on the inside. And then eventually when the poor people were done working, they'd come and hang out on the outside of the porch, and the rich would look down on the poor be like, you're poor because, you know, uh, you're a sinner and this is God's judgment upon you. And, and the poor would be like, uh, you know, you rich people. Um, they, and, and there was no unity. And the poor were hating the rich and the rich were hating the poor. And that's not what Christ said. I didn't die for one group or the other. I died for all. I want you to be of the same spirit or the same mind. And so in the Lord's Supper, even in the Lord's Supper, as they're trying to do something, and in the, again, the Lord's Supper is to think about what Christ did on the cross for you. It's a very sobering time as you think about his shed blood and his broken body and what that meant and what it cost. And even in this moment, if you're not pursuing Christ, you're going to miss out on that. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's do this in remembrance of me and what he did for you. And it's a sober time to take your sin seriously. And the righteousness that Christ gave you even more seriously. 
And it's a time to come before the Lord and thank him for what he did and to enjoy what he did. But here they are because, again, they're seeking self and their own morality and they're not pursuing Christ. They're messing up the Lord's Supper. Spiritual gifts. They had spiritual gifts and they were using their spiritual gifts to edify themselves. They had spiritual gifts wrong. So again, practicing their spiritual gifts, doing things, looking like how they think they should be. But they would use their spiritual gifts to exalt themselves over their brother. Oh, you can't speak in tongues? Well, I'll pray for you because I have a wonderful gift and ability to prayer. You know, and it's like exalting self and using your spiritual gifts to puff yourself up instead of using your spiritual gifts to build up the other person. Because again, Christ came to build us up, to help us walk right, to help us do right. He didn't give us a spiritual gift so that we could claim to be the best, right? We see that example with John and uh, James, the sons of thunder, when they wanted to be on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. They wanted to exalt him above the rest of the group. And what did that lead to? Fighting among the disciples, like, oh, there goes James and John again, trying to be the head. And instead of using gifts to eat, to lift each other up, they're using them to exalt themselves. And then the resurrection, right? And in that spiritual gifts, we get chapter, we get the love chapter, right? Chapter 13 talks about what love is because they, they didn't understand love either. They didn't understand love the way God did. Because if you're not focused on Christ and what Christ has done for you, and you're not focused on the gospel and what Christ is continually doing in your life, you're not going to understand love. And so in chapter 15, we get to the resurrection because even they had this wrong. They had this wrong. They actually were doubting the resurrection of Christ. And we're going we're gonna to get there in a second as I conclude this. But they had that messed up. So, and in that, it's like no wonder why they're, <laughs> they weren't living in the light of the hope that they should have. And then so chapter 15, I think is this beautiful chapter in 15 where Paul really highlights a lot of the truths that ha- should help motivate you, that should help walk you in a way where you're walking with Christ and practicing Christianity and you're, you're pursuing Christ. And then lastly, he talks about stewardship a little bit, and then he gives off his personal plans and greeting, and that's how he concludes the book. But as you can see, most of the book is all about their error. And so we're going to get to chapter 15 now, and we're going to spend some time there. So if you want to open up your Bibles, if you haven't done it already, I want you to park in 1 Corinthians 15. I got a couple verses on the board, but I'm going to go back and forth to the Scripture to talk about it more. I love how the NKJV has it. Moreover, moreover, brethren, Most importantly, I want you to think about this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved. If you hold fast that word, which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. Notice that. It's like, he's like, the gospel is everything. If Christ died for all, is there class warfare? No. Christ. Is there disunity? No. 
There shouldn't be disunity. Because it's like Christ died for those that follow Apollos, and Christ died for those that Paul, Paul, and Christ died for everyone, and there's no reason to have division. Especially in today's age, when you think about this as a church, what we believe, and I know it's fun, like David and I on a couple of our walks when we're talking about theology as we're walking, and I start talking about some of the stuff that I, I just love to ponder. It's like, I sound like a nutter compared to the rest of the world, and I'm all right with that. But compared to the rest of the world, and, and it's like we should all be centered around the hope that we have in the gospel and in Christ. And that, and that should help with that unity. And when you think about the gospel and that love and the forgiveness that is practiced when it gets to the marriage, your marriage, and you understand what the marriage is, your marriage will be better and more flour, flourish and, and, and grow into something that God has designed marriage to be. It's kind of fun, like uh, uh, Tabitha and I, when we, one of the things that we ponder when we walk, and, and it, when uh, the Sadducees are trying to be tricky and they want to catch uh, Jesus off guard, and then they ask him, and they say, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they turn around and they ask, and they say, all right, the woman marries a man, he dies, they have no children, and then she marries his brother, and, and he dies before they have children, so she marries the next brother, and she does this seven times in heaven, which man is she going to be married to? And then Jesus says, oh, how do you not understand? You're going to be like the angels. You're not going to be giving in marriage and having kids. And my wife and I, I enjoy my relationship with Tabitha so much that thought is horrible to me. Not having my bride with me in heaven. And then I have to, in my faith, stand back and say, you know what, Lord? It's got to be that great that I'm not going to miss this relationship. And, and, and I'm just, it just makes me wonder how much I don't understand about heaven that that thought to me is sad to me that I won't have my bride as the most intimate relationship that God has given me, right? I think of Proverbs, I'm forgetting which proverb it is, uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing has found favor with the Lord. And, and, and it's this beautiful concept and, and when you think of the gospel and you understand that and you understand what marriage is designed for, because again, when marriage was established, it was in the Garden of Eden and it was for man's good. And then sin corrupts it. And if you're practicing morality without Christianity, you can have a real rough marriage. And, and you can miss out on the blessings that God has put in there. It's kind of interesting because the one thing I do think about one of the purposes of marriage on this planet is the intimacy that you find in the Trinity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three that are one, I think, is reflected in the marriage, especially in a Christian marriage, because that Holy Spirit that's part of that Trinity is part of your marriage as well, helping the two of you become one. And that same Holy Spirit that resides in the man resides in the woman. And, and, and so there's this beautiful thing about what God has designed for marriage and what it can be. And so, if you're going to practice some morality and not the gospel, your marriage is probably not going to be what God wanted it to be. And so, so the gospel, which you stand, it's what you have received, you receive it, you get saved by it, he says that, but in which you stand. If you're not standing in the gospel every day, reminding yourself that 
God loved you enough to die for you, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. If you're not going to realize that you are not, you needed the gospel, you needed your Savior to die for you because you are a sinner, you are going to miss out on that. And then you can act in a self-righteous way. If you're relying on the righteousness of Christ, you know you have to focus on Christ. Because if you're not, you're going to have your own morality, and your own morality is going to get corrupted by your own sinful thoughts. And if you're not, if you're, if you're underestimating your sinfulness and not standing in the gospel that you needed a Savior, not just to save you from the penalty of sin, but to save you from the power of your sin, it, it, you're going to continue on. You have to hold fast to the words of the gospel. And, and, and I like how Paul delivers it out in chapter, uh, in verses 3. 3 through 5, and he continues on through verse 11, but I'm just going to read those. For I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And then he carries on about that because he, he's going to focus on the resurrection because people were confused about the resurrection. They didn't understand that Jesus was raised. And so they're, they're almost practicing inanity if they, they don't believe that Jesus is raised because if Jesus isn't raised, we have no hope. And Paul talks about that. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If you're going to practice Christianity without Christ, Paul is saying you are the most pitiable. I, I remember the first time reading that and just striking me. Like... Like, at first I was kind of confused. I wasn't fully understanding the full context. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. To be the most pitiable of all men, saved, unsaved, all men, anywhere. If you're going to practice Christianity without Christ, you are the most pitiable. Inanity equals insanity. That's what Paul's kind of getting at here. There's this, if you're going to be, you're going to miss out on all the wonderful things if you're going to try to practice Christianity by just your morality and not just by following after Christ. Uh, I heard the sweet little analogy of like those that are unsaved are going to enjoy their sin and have fun with their sin and, and not be convicted by their sin. And those that are spiritual and are going to enjoy Christ are going to have true joy because they're hanging out with God the Father who loves them and is... and knows that and has joy by pursuing Christ and then you got those carnal people in between that aren't spiritual they're going to be convicted by their sin and not enjoy it and they're not going to have the joy of Christ and they're going to be trying to strive and fight for their own righteousness which is so anti-gospel it's so anti what Christ did on the cross for you as you strive for your own righteousness I say it all the time. You couldn't get yourself saved by attaining your own righteousness worthy of heaven. You aren't going to get it after you get saved. If you're going to do it apart from Christ, you're hopeless. 
And yeah, I, it used to crush me, the thought of uh, when Peter writes it, as, you are, as he is holy, you too shall be holy. Because I knew I couldn't be holy. I, man, I, temptation when it comes my way sometimes, I trip and fall harder than anybody else. I'll be the first to admit it. My sons, not my perfect daughters, my sons, when, when their sinfulness comes out, I would love to say that I'm always like Jesus to them. I try to start that way. I remind myself, Rich, they're little sinners. They need your love. And then halfway through, I'm like, What are you doing? <laughs> That's not Christ. It's not. I tripped into temptation. And I can tell you this much too. I pro- and I know the difference. I prop myself up going, Rich, they need your love. And then there's other times when I get it right. And I'm like, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, here we go again. Help me, Lord. Give me wisdom. I like Moses. When Moses was struggling with the people, he said, don't let me see my wretchedness. And I pray that. Lord, <laughs> Lord, don't let me see my wretchedness. I don't want to be yelling at my kids. You didn't give me these wonderful sons to yell at. My wife thinks I look kind of like a fool at the time, too. You didn't call me to look like that, Lord. You didn't call me to be this. You have a different plan for me. And when I see Christ first, discipline goes better, and it goes well. When I try to do it in my own might, in my own strength, in my own wisdom, usually my one son who's really good at arguing with me halfway through it, I realize I'm relying on my own wit, and I'm not going before the Lord, and then I stop and pray. That's a nice little trigger he's got for me where I get back on Christ. But again, parenting, every relationship, if we're not focused on Christ, we're going to have it wrong. And, that's, and, and what's interesting, it's like when he says this, be pitiable above all men. There's a, a couple quotes from MacArthur that I like. Whether you like them or not, these quotes I like. Without the resurrection and salvation and blessings it brings, Christianity would be pointless and pitiable. There are a ton of blessings that are founded in the resurrection of Christ. And like Ephesians says, you have been blessed. It's done. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's whether or not that you're growing and maturing in those and understanding those and pursuing them. And if you're not doing that and you're trying to just be a moral fellow because you're called to be a good person and that's what you think Christianity is, you got it all wrong. Christianity is not just about being a good person. There's plenty of people out in the world that are good people. Being holy like he is holy is completely beyond just being a good person. And that comes when you're focused on the Holy One. Right? And, and the blessings that it brings. You have been given the Spirit. I love reading in John 15 when he's talking about the Comforter and the, uh, the upper room discourse when Jesus is ter- encouraging the disciples. I'm about to leave you, but I'm going to send one for you. I'm going to send a comforter. You have the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. But if you're going to live without, like, without the thought of Christ and you're going to have your own morality, you're not going to be focused on, the, on what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. You're not going to be focused on the Holy Spirit is there to empower you. Pastor preached about it this morning, about being God's power, about being a broken vessel, but relying on God's power. The Holy Spirit, when he empowers you, he empowers you to do what you can't do. 
to do to be holy, to be like Christ in your relationships, to be the spiritual leader, to submit to your husband, to love your children, to raise them up, to share the gospel with your lost co-workers, your lost friends, your lost family members. When you are enjoying the Holy Spirit, knowing that it's there, that he's there to help you be what you can, to empower you to do what you can't. You're going to miss out on those blessings if you're not focused on Christ and you're focused on your own morality. And not only that, but Christianity would be pointless. Why be moral? Right? Why? Right? He has another quote. To have hope in Christ in this life only would be to teach, preach, suffer, and sacrifice and work entirely for nothing. If you're not doing it for the glory of God and the glory of Christ, what are you doing? If you're not doing it with Christ, when you do obey Christ, when you want to follow after Christ, and you're trying to do right, because I, I bet you if everybody raised their hand, anybody ever try to do something right and have it go really wrong? Yeah. Every one of you. I, I, I bet you every woman here can tell you about a time when they try to submit to their husband because God asked them to submit. And they're like, <laughs> that's the last time I'm doing that. Or when a man was called to love his wife when he was not being respectable and she wasn't and she was nagging on him and he didn't want to love her and had the marriage going wrong, right? And, and I think that's another problem too is when you're, that suffering, when you're being obedient, it has purpose. And when you follow after Christ, that's what the cross was all about. He obeyed his father, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't dancing, hooting, and hollering, can't wait for tomorrow. Let's have a big barbecue and celebrate what I'm about to do on the cross. But he went, right? He prayed, Lord, not your will, but my, not my will, but yours. And he obediently went to the cross, and he suffered greatly, greatly for us. But because he is raised, we know that suffering and obedience will produce fruit that will lead to what God would have for you. Suffering is not for nothing. But if you're going to be doing, if, if Christ isn't raised and you're just trying to practice Christianity for, not for Christ's glory, but just for your own morality, it, why? Why? Right? It's like we watch this crazy world go off on its own sin. I totally get it. If you're not going to enjoy God and follow after God, like the rules and regulations of Christianity are just oppressive. Right? Go enjoy your sin if there's no Christ. But there is a Christ. And there's a reason not to. There's a future hope. And that's in the resurrection that we'll have. And when you're focused on Christ, you're focused on that future resurrection. You're focused on the glorified body that you'll get. You'll focus on the eternity that you'll have with him. And you'll be focused not on your own morality, not on your own life here, but you'll be focused on the lives of others, making sure that they're coming with you. You'll be focused on being Christ to others. And you'll be, you won't be afraid of obeying, knowing that maybe bad, bad circumstances might come out of your obedience because you're more worried with an eternal perspective, trying to glorify Christ and not yourself. I greatly appreciate that. Our suffering and sacrifice 
mean everything when you do it with Christ. Don't practice inanity. Practice Christianity. Enjoy your Savior. Walk with your Savior. Aim to please your Savior. And when you're struggling to do that, He's the one you go to for strength. He's the one you go to. 1 John 1, 9. Confess and forsake your sins and He'll what? He's faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's going to forgive you, cleanse you, put you back on your feet and get you going there. He died for you so that you wouldn't be stuck in your sin. He's not going to sit there and wag a finger at you when you're in your sin. When you're struggling and you're convicted and you're feeling condemned, tell yourself the gospel. He died for me so I wouldn't be here. Knowing that he loves me enough to die for me, he's not going to leave me in my sin, but he wants to pull me out of my sin. He wants me to obey him. God knew that we couldn't do it on our own, so he sent his son. And then when his son was raised and up in heaven now, waiting for us, waiting for us at that bema seat to give us rewards for faithfully following after him, he sent the Holy Spirit to help us. God dwelling in us so that we could be like God and walk with him. And Christianity means everything. And everything is purposeful. And everything will be blessed by God. I always love that verse. God works out all things for our good to those who love him. It's really easy once you start to understand what Christ has done for you and is doing for you to love him. It's not that we loved him first, but he loved us. While we were enemies, he died for us. Think about that. When you're an enemy, he died for you. How much more now that you're his child, his son, he's going to fight for you. So, Practice Christianity. I love, I love Jesus' invitation to everybody in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And his invitation to come to him, to come walk with him. It, I love that image of yoke, right? It, he's going to be yoked with you like two animals together that got to plow a field. So, it, simple example, right? It, it's like, it'd be like me joining up of a, a basketball team with like Giannis and LeBron and, and me being the fifth guy out there. I, I'm going to win a lot of games, not because of me, right? If we lose on the season, it's probably going to be because of me. But I'm going to be yoked to Christ. He's the one that's going to be doing the plowing. He's the one that's going to be helping me as I struggle trying to figure out how to do it. As I struggle trying to walk with him. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. So tonight, as I conclude, I want to encourage you Take advantage. Take advantage. Take full advantage of the grace in the gospel. I remember in my, in, in my more younger Christian days, I was told not to abuse grace. 
I get that. Don't go practicing sin. Right? If you're in sin, get out of sin. But more importantly, take full advantage of his grace. Everything that he offers, try to take and use every ounce of it. And then some. Ask for more. Try to use anything and everything. I don't think you can use all the grace that God has got for you. I doubt if we even use a tenth of what he's got for us. So please, please, take advantage of the gospel. Put on that yoke and enjoy your Savior and practice Christianity, not Indianity. So let's go, to, let's go to our Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth said in your word. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us get into your word more, Lord. Your word is a mirror. It's a mirror that's supposed to show us what, how you would have us leave our life, live our lives. It's a mirror to show us a better way. It's a mirror to show us your way and where we fall short. Instead of letting us hide, Lord, let us put on that yoke. Let us focus on you and how you would help us walk in the way that you'd want. So when obedience is rough, Lord, let us not blindly be moral people, but let us be people that walk with you. Let us people that enjoy you. Help us be spiritual. Help us wake up and be thankful that we have a day to spend with you. Let us enjoy our salvation, knowing that you loved us beyond our comprehension. Help us understand what is the breadth and the depth and the width of your love and your grace, and let that be the focus of our lives, Lord. Let us go out in light of that, Lord. Let us share that grace with others. Let us enjoy it. We thank you for it, Lord.